open a Bible with me this morning to John chapter 5. There is a resurrection power available through Jesus, our Savior. This summer we've been looking at the, the opening chapters of John's Gospel where we see the power, authority of Jesus on display in his miracles and then explained to us in his words. The first half of this gospel contains the signs, the miracles which are meant to point us to a deeper truth, not not really to to awe us at the, the marvel of what Jesus can accomplish, but to point us to the truth of who Jesus is and why he has come. We're in John chapter 5, and and last Sunday, we saw that on the day of the Sabbath, Jesus healed a man who had been waiting 38 years for help. Jesus then made clear that even, even though it was the Sabbath, it was right for him to bring this healing. Because he said in John 5 verse 17, this is where we ended last week, he said, my father is working until now, and I am working. His explanation causes conflict. It's created a mess. But here we see the the truth of who Jesus is. So listen as I read. I'm going to read John chapter 5 from verse 18 through verse 29. We'll finish the chapter as we move through the sermon, but I'm going to begin by reading John 5 verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show you so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let me pray that God would make clear the truth of his word to us and apply it into our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for the picture of your love, your grace, your judgment that we have in the ministry of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we thank you for the the clarity of your word which confronts us in our sin. Lord, I pray that where we need to be uncomfortable today, that we will be, that we will sit under your judgment, but Lord, I pray that we would find mercy, that we would find grace and forgiveness 
through the ministry of Jesus, our Savior. So, Lord, let your spirit have authority and control in our lives. Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. The future is now. It's a slogan that tries to capture the progress of the world around us. The future is now. There's a 1955 documentary with that title that visits government research labs to show us the amazing technological progress that we're seeing in the world around us. The future is now. The the video begins with words that seem commonplace to us, but were not yet part of ordinary 1950s vocabulary. The, The voiceover begins, radiation, fusion, radioactivity, neutron, gamma rays, solar power, transistor. And then they explain, to the public, it is the language of the future. To the scientist, the language of the present. When Jesus speaks in John 5, he argues in the words of of one of the commentators, the future is now. What What people expected would happen sometime in the distant future, Jesus says, it's happening right now. He took words which which they would have applied to the far distance, words about eternal life, and said, eternal life, it's available right now. They would have said, we're waiting the resurrection which will come. Resurrection is here right now. Look look with me at, at verse 24, where Jesus makes this promise. The second of the three truly, truly statements capturing their attention and and diving deep into what is core, what we should understand. In in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Eternal life, not, not so much speaking of how long it will last, which is the way we typically use the word eternal, but in John's gospel, it, it, it's bigger. Yes, it will last forever, but, but it's not primarily the, the time the, the issue that, that, that John is pointing to. He's saying, this is eternal life. This is life with God himself. This is union with God the Father in heaven. He says, whoever hears my word and believes the Father who sent me has eternal life. You're not waiting till you die for eternal life to begin. The future is, is right now. He continues in verse 25. He repeats this truly, truly statement, wanting to to hammer home with a point to this hostile audience that's listening to him, ones who doubt who he is. He says, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour is coming, that that hour, the, the, the end of history. When judgment comes, Jesus says, oh, that hour you've been waiting for, it's right now. The future is now because Jesus has arrived. See, everything God's people had been waiting for is right in front of them. Eternal life, resurrection, judgment, everything is right here in the ministry of Jesus. And so as we walk through this passage, I I want us to to just look at at the authority of Jesus, the witnesses to Jesus, and then for us to heed the warning that's offered here. We we remember the context from last week 
that Jesus, having healed on the Sabbath, claims authority that belongs to God alone. You don't have the right to tell a man to take up his mat. This is the Sabbath. I mean, the absurdity is they overlook the miracle itself and just argue about simple instructions. But Jesus makes the, the claim in verse 17, my father is working until now. You all agree that God works on the Sabbath. For God stopped working, then the universe would cease to exist. So you agree God can work on the Sabbath. Well, let me tell you, God's working, and so I'm working. Now, they, they understand what Jesus said to them. It, it wasn't a confusing phrase, because look at verse 18. This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Those words are blasphemous, if not true. To claim to be on par with God, to have the same authority as God, is to make a claim of divinity. And so they now recognize they have to get rid of Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus now turns and speaks to them, knowing that this is what's happening, knowing that the conflict that he has incited, that he has started, will lead to his death. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's claiming an authority that belongs to him. He, he repeats it three times in this passage. And, and this is actually the longest inter, uninterrupted speech of Jesus in this gospel that's directed to his opponents. I mean, we'll have later in the gospel when he, when, he, when he takes three chapters to describe to his disciples what it will look like to live in the Spirit after, after his death. But this is his longest uninterrupted speech, partly because usually he can't get through very much before they push him out of town or they threaten, to threaten something worse. And here, what Jesus claims he, he, I mean, he doubles down on what he said in verse 17 by saying, yes, I have the authority of God the Father because the Father is the one who sent me. Now, the structure of the passage, and you can see it even in the, the English, it, it, it begins with these four statements. Look, look at verse 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He's making an argument that, that whatever he does is the purpose of God. It's done with the authority of God. And then there are these statements that say, for whatever the Father does in verse 19, or the beginning of verse 20, for the Father loves the Son, verse 21, for the, as the Father raises the dead, verse 22, for the Father judges no one. He, he just keeps making this argument, because God has done this, then I have the authority to do what I'm doing. Because God is the one who sent me, you have to listen to me. So he begins in verse 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Like an apprentice learning the family trade by watching his father in the workshop, by going with him from Nazareth and traveling around to the work sites around the region. Just as Jesus had apprenticed as a carpenter, as a craftsman, as a tradesman, so he does what he sees his father in heaven doing. For whatever the father does, the Son does likewise. He's claiming the authority of God himself. And then he presses the argument much, much deeper in verse 20. It's not just that he sees God at work when they can't, when his, when his listeners can't see God. 
It's actually that, that he is in a relationship with God that they can't fully understand. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus makes the argument that his relationship with the Father, the love the Father has for him, is the reason he's here. I mean, this is, this is the reason that, that earlier in John's gospel he could say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God's love for us is secondary to the Father's love for the Son. What starts first is the love of God the Father for the love of the Son. The only reason you and I experience that love is because the Father sent the Son out of love for the Son, sent the Son to us so that we could experience the love of God. The love that Jesus experiences with the Father is first. It's primary. And, and it may sound like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. A father loves his son first and then loves other people. But, but Jesus, remember, is, is making a claim to the authority of God himself, making himself equal with God. That's what this whole argument is. That's what, what Jesus is explaining to them. And here, I mean, this really is the foundation of the universe. That God, the Father, loves God, the Son. That's a primary foundational truth that you and I need to understand. And it, it actually really then becomes a starting point for, for all that we would come to understand. When we ask the big questions of life, is there any purpose in life? Is the, the universe, is it just material stuff? Or is there anything such as love and beauty and truth? Where could we find meaning and significance? Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, who didn't believe in God, he asked the question that's at the foundation of the universe. He, he, he's trying to figure out through his life, through his, his, uh, his physics, trying to figure out how did this all start? How does the world work? What's the purpose of the universe? And in, and in his, his book, he, he shares, he says, a well-known scientist, some would say it was Bertrand Russell, another atheist, one who didn't believe in God. He says, this well-known scientist once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the earth orbits around the sun and how the sun in turn orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. Now, the scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the tortoise standing on? If the world is on the back of a tortoise, kind of capturing some of the myths, I mean, it, there's, there's not any one culture that shares this, that, that gives us this story exactly, but, but kind of a shared creation myth. Well, the, the woman says, oh, you're very clever, young man, very clever. But it's turtles all the way down. You have a turtle standing on another turtle, and well, what's below that? Another turtle. Well, what's below that? Uh, it's another turtle. It's turtles all the way down. That's what the universe is. Now, I see some of you shaking your heads at me and saying, all right, that's kind of nonsense. The problem is, Stephen Hawking or Bertrand Russell, who was interrupted, as an atheist, actually has no real answer to that question. 
They can say, what is the universe? It's stuff. It's material stuff. They can, they can get back to the, to the starting point where they would say is that, that moment of the Big Bang, but, but where did the stuff come from? What's, what's the stuff resting on? Just more stuff. So for a materialistic atheist, it's, well, it's just atoms or stuff or neutrons or pick any fancy word, but it's that all the way down. Richard Dawkins, a biologist, again, another atheist, he agrees with this materialist assessment when he explains that the universe is nothing but a blind, pitiless indifference. What's the purpose? There is no purpose. Is there hope and joy and beauty? It's just stuff. But does that sort of scientific answer, and to be fair, not all scientists would give this kind of answer, but is that materialistic assessment that the universe is nothing but a blind, pitiless indifference, that it's stuff all the way down, does that actually help you make sense of the world that you know, of consciousness, of thinking, of contemplation, of beauty, of joy, of love? See, the Bible's answer is one author, author summarizes it, kind of taking this, this idea of its turtles all the way down. One author says, the Bible's answer, it's love all the way down. What's the foundation of the universe? God who has always existed in perfect relationship and in love. When, when, when Jesus says, for the Father loves the Son and, has, and shows him all that he himself is doing. He's telling us a core foundational truth. Because either you end up with an infinite regress where you just keep piling turtles upon one another and you get bigger and bigger turtles all the way down or you have to start with something greater than that. God who has always been in love. A God who doesn't need us but in love chose to create the universe. A God who could have abandoned us when we rebelled against him without giving up anything in himself, still in perfect love, could have turned his back on us in judgment. And yet, the Father loves the Son and sent the Son to show his love for us. See, this actually helps us make sense of the world as we know it. That there is purpose to your life. That, that the, the joy and the love that you experience in relationships makes sense. It actually helps us then figure out where things are broken. We can call something evil, evil. If it just is, then it just is. If you're a materialist, and I don't mean a materialist and then you just want more stuff for yourself. That's a different kind of materialism. I mean a scientific materialism where you say the universe at its core is just stuff. Well then to see something evil, you just call it, it's just there. But if God eternally exists in a loving, triune relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, then we actually begin to make sense of the world. Because Jesus is the one with all authority. That's what he says in verse 22. He says that that the Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. That all, verse 23, may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Because whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus has been given prime place over all of the creation that was made. 
He's the one who comes to execute judgment. Now, you, you might think, well, wait, didn't Jesus say he didn't come to judge? Isn't that what, we, what he explained to Nicodemus? I, I, I've already quoted that most famous verse in John's gospel, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the love the Father has for us comes from the love that God has in himself. But, but, but it, it continues, and admittedly, John 3.17 is not as famous as John 3.16. But right after offering the gift of eternal life, this is what we read. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, then what is Jesus talking about just two chapters later when he says, God has given me all judgment, that he is the one with all authority? See, either we just have to take that these verses are in conflict, that, that Jesus said them just days or weeks apart, or that John wrote them down just pages apart and didn't figure this out. Or when Jesus says, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might live through him, because, continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. So the primary reason Jesus came isn't to condemn the guilty. They are condemned already. The primary reason Jesus came is to offer this gift of eternal life. And yet he is the one who comes in judgment. It's not a contradiction with what we heard in John 3. It's just showing us his primary purpose is to offer us the hope of life. That's what verse 24 says in John 5. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he continues in verse, 25, in verse, verse 26 that Jesus is the one who has life to give to us. Jesus has all authority. The authority of God the Father in heaven now displayed on earth in front of them. And now Jesus brings in witnesses to this truth. So let me continue reading. I'm going to begin reading at verse 30 of John 5. Jesus is the one with all authority. Now he's going to say, and there are witnesses that can confirm this truth. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to this truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that, so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus comes speaking with the authority of God the Father in heaven. In verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. He is here, submissive always to the will of his Father. In verse 31, we, we might read it that, that he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. We, we might accidentally read that, that you, you, can't, you can't trust me, I'm unreliable, so let me get you some people who are reliable. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, kind of taking that Old Testament principle from Deuteronomy, that you don't just take one man's word for it, you bring forth two or three to be witnesses of the truth. You don't merely take the prophet's word, you test the prophecy. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you don't want to take my word for it. That's what got us into this mess. You don't want to listen to me. I'm telling you I speak with the Father's authority. So let me bring witnesses along. He says in verse 33, you sent to John. Back in chapter 1, John, John was baptizing down at the River Jordan. The religious leaders in Jerusalem go to the effort to send an envoy down to John to ask, John, who sent you? What are you doing? What's going on here? Jesus says, you were willing to listen to John. For a little while, you basked in the light that he brought. But he's not the source of light. He's just a, a lamp holder. He's just carrying the, the torch that God gave him. You were willing to listen to John. John testified about me. See, Jesus says, I don't need a man to testify about me. That's not where my authority comes. John was sent by the Father to testify about me. But you were willing to listen to John, so listen and then Jesus says, but there's one, verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Because he comes with the testimony of God himself. Now, they've been unwilling to listen to the voice of God. They've been unwilling to listen when Jesus speaks the very words of God. So, so he gives them some evidence. He says in verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Hey, remember how we got into this mess? There was a man who'd been laying there for 38 years that no one could help. I told him to stand up. He stood up and he was healed. The works the Father has given me testify to the truth that the Father is the one who sent me. And yet, you overlook the very miracle itself. You won't even see the truth that's right in front of you. And, and see, sometimes I think we, as modern-day readers, we think, well, I, I could believe it if I could just see it. Like, if I could have seen the miracle, then I would believe it. Well, really? Almost everybody who witnessed the miracles that Jesus did doesn't end up believing. Some of them believe for a little while, but later in John's Gospel, he'll say, you followed me because I gave you food, not because you saw a miracle. You followed because I, I satiated your physical hunger not because you really received the bread of heaven that was being offered to you. That's what we'll see in the coming weeks. See, just seeing the miracle wouldn't be enough. You actually need to look past the sign to the truth to which it's pointing, pointing us to the truth of who Jesus is. And it's the Father himself who bears witness. 
That's what Jesus says in verse 37. But the people won't listen to his voice. They won't believe the word God has sent. Even the scriptures which God gave to them, which they, which they claim to exalt. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in there are the words of eternal life. But remember, this wasn't some sort of cookbook or concoction that if you could just figure out the formula on your own, you could get eternal life for yourself. Remember, the scriptures were always pointing to me. Jesus says, I'm the one who has eternal life. The scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. He says, you you say you would listen to Moses. You you exalt the the books of the Bible and say, especially those, those five written by Moses. But Jesus says, Moses was writing about me. You wouldn't listen to the testimony. All of scripture points to Jesus. There's salvation found in him, but it's found in him alone. And so Jesus is the one with all authority. He he brings forth these witnesses to testify to the truth, but what he's really doing is offering to his listeners a warning. That the one who comes in judgment is the one who offers eternal life. Jesus says in, in verses 28 and 29, as he says that he's the one who has all authority to execute judgment, he says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this. Don't be surprised that I would say this to you. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is the one who demands all honor, because it's an honor that has been given to him. He's the one who has the hope of eternal life. He is the one who comes as the judge. And whoever believes in Jesus will not be judged. And so maybe the reason that you, you feel uncomfortable today has nothing to do with the broken air conditioner. Maybe the reason you're hot under the collar is because you feel the judgment of God. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church. There was a trick the preachers would have. If you're preaching about judgment, you push up the thermostat. Because then everybody feels it. I didn't do that today. When I came over first thing and realized the air conditioner wasn't working, I was, we were down. We were trying to get it trouble. We were trying to get it fixed. Um, but maybe the reason that you're uncomfortable today is because you realize when you look at yourself that you are one who deserves the judgment of God. That you are one who, who looks at what Jesus has done and says, well, that's kind of a nice trick, but I'd prefer something bigger. You're one who looks at Jesus and says, well, you speak with that kind of authority, but... You know what, I, I think the universe exists without you. I don't need you to make sense of my life. I don't need you here. But Jesus takes the opportunity when his authority is challenged. Remember, what are they going to try and do to him? Kill him. He doesn't tuck his tail and run and hide. He says, okay, you want to talk about authority? Well, let me lay out my authority. Let me affirm that what you thought I said before about coming with the authority of God in heaven is true. Because the Father has loved me from all eternity. Because I am one with God the Father. Everything God does, I do. All that God says, I say. I am the Son of God standing in your midst. 
But instead of bringing immediate judgment, which he would be right to do, to challenge the authority of Jesus face to face with Jesus, they would deserve judgment. And yet what does he do? He offers them the hope of eternal life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do you want to avoid the judgment that is coming? Do you want to pass from death to life? Then believe in me. Because there is coming a day, Jesus warns, when everyone will be raised, when the dead will be called out of the tombs. Everyone who has ever lived will stand in judgment. Those, we read in verse 29, who have done good, meaning not that they've done enough good stuff to sort of outweigh the bad in their life. What what he's saying clearly in this context is what you're being asked to do, what is the good thing you're being asked to do? Well, we've seen it repeatedly. Believe in Jesus. Hear Jesus. Listen. And then follow. Trust. He says, but if you don't do that, if you've done evil, if you reject Jesus, then you will will be judged yourself. Jesus extends a warning to the very ones who are trying to kill him. But that's why he's here. Like, this isn't accidental. Like, we're not getting to the the part of the plot where it's starting to spin out of control beyond Jesus' reach. No, this is the very reason he came was to die. The one who comes as the judge steps in and takes the judgment upon himself. The threat against his life is his very purpose for coming. So you and I can receive eternal life, eternal life that begins right now, full relationship with God, and lasts forever. We can receive eternal life because Jesus died on the cross. We have the hope of resurrection, a resurrection of life, because God raised Jesus from the dead. See, this shows us the depth of God's love. Not merely his love for us, but that God himself is love. I mean, John will actually, he'll, he'll write that down for us later in 1 John. He'll, he'll get to that truth that we're seeing here, that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He'll, he'll say, well, it's because God is love. Has always been. Will always be. Even the judgment that is brought is because God loves us. Because God corrects sin. God deals with evil. So we see the son's reciprocal love for the father. The father loves the son, the son loves the father, and so obeys the will of the father. Where do we see it? We see it most clearly on the cross. That the son of God would die in the place of sinners. The judge taking judgment on himself. But see, too often we ignore the warnings. We say, well, that's not a danger for me. I mean, in terms of like how bad people are, I mean, I'm not really as bad. I mean, if you met some of my coworkers, if you met my classmates, I mean, they're the ones that need to hear words of judgment, words of of warning. Or we might think, but it's, it's not a worry for me right now. I've got time. I'll figure this out. Jesus himself stands and offers you the gift of eternal life. The judge takes the judgment upon himself and then says to us, to those who would threaten to kill him, to those who would rebel against his authority, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy displayed in the ministry of Jesus. Lord, we see it in his compassion to the man at the pool of Bethesda, the man who had waited decades who finds healing. Lord, we see it in, in Jesus' response to the enemies who would, who would threaten him, that he offers to those that try and kill him a warning and the gift of eternal life. Father, for those who sit here today under the judgment of our own sin, I pray that they would admit their sin, that they would turn and believe in Jesus, that having heard your word read and preached, that your spirit would grant the gift of eternal life. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the one who shows us your love. And so we rejoice in his cross. We pray for the power of the resurrection to transform us, that we might today have the hope of eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.